Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of June 3rd, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And if it's June 3rd, that means it's one day before June 4th. Oft referred to in China as merely 6 4 in a kind of code to invoke, without explicitly mentioning, the events in Beijing on June 4th, 1989, known to the rest of the world as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And there's been this interesting sort of game of cat and mouse that Chinese cyber dissidents have played with the official censors to send coded messages referring to the massacre. The obvious numerical combination of 6-4, of course, was quickly banned. So the dissident switched to 63 plus 1, 65 minus 1, and 535 for May 35th, until the cyber cops got wise to those two. Tiananmen Square itself will, we may assume, be locked down on June 4th, as it is every year, to prevent massacre commemorations from taking place. But now, for a third year running, there will also be no massacre commemorations in Hong Kong, due to the harsh crackdown which is being instated there. And the absurd security measures speak to the ultimate futility of trying to suppress the truth this way. The virtual shutting down of Tiananmen Square every June 4th is itself a perverse and paradoxical commemoration of the massacre on the part of the authorities. And presumably, every year it causes some children to ask their parents what all the police patrols are about. Ironically, facilitating the passage of historical memory onto the next generation, even if those children receive only veiled and guarded answers. And if they are hushed by their parents, this will only serve to heighten their curiosity and plant seeds of doubt in their minds about the morality of the system. And there's a particular irony to this, you know, new harsh dictatorship, this old-style one-man rule under a paramount leader, quote-unquote, that is now consolidating under Xi Jinping, because um, she is the son of one of Mao Zedong's so-called first-generation elite, among the people who were there at the seizure of power in 1949, Xi Zhang Shun, and the younger Xi was kind of, you know, born to power, but the elder she fell out of grace and was the victim of a purge for speaking out against the repression at Tiananmen Square in 1989. But his son, the younger she, was by then well ensconced in the bureaucracy and uh, was a rising star and was unaffected. He became a so-called hardliner at the same time that he also became a leading advocate of market liberalization and developing the private sector. And this, as I will argue over the course of this podcast, is contrary to popular misconception, not 
a contradiction. But first, um, an announcement. Just like the uh, the massacre commemoration was first exiled from Beijing to Hong Kong, well, it has now been exiled from Hong Kong to New York. So um, if you are here in New York City and you're listening to this podcast in time, please come out on the evening of Saturday, June 4th to Washington Square Park in the heart of Greenwich Village, where the local activist group New York for Hong Kong will be hosting the NYC Tiananmen Square Vigil 33rd Anniversary. It's going to go on for three hours. They're going to be meeting in the park at uh, 5 p.m. when there's going to be a uh, an art installation. And then at 7.30 p.m. when the sun goes down, they're going to be holding a candlelight vigil. I'm going to be there. I urge you to be there. I attended the one last year and um, wrote up an account of it for the Village Sun local news website. And last year, among those in attendance were actually two survivors of the Tiananmen Square movement in China in 1989. One was Lu Jinghua, who was a founder of the Beijing Workers' Autonomous Federation, the independent labor union that emerged in solidarity with the student protesters, then camping out in Tiananmen Square. She had to flee China in the wave of repression following the massacre, and today has asylum in the United States. And the other was Chen Pokang, who led pro-democracy protests in Guangzhou, where he was then a student during the 1989 movement. After the movement was repressed, he served several years in prison and at hard labor, and went into exile in the U.S. after his release. So come on out to Washington Square Park on Saturday 6-4, and it's quite likely that you will meet some of the honored veterans of the 1989 pro-democracy movement in China. Okay, now uh, by way of opening up this discussion, I am going to briefly refer once again, I know I've been harping on him a lot, but I'm going to just very briefly refer once again to Noam Chomsky and uh, his interview in particular in um, Current Affairs that we've been critiquing on this podcast, in which he uh, openly calls for um, Ukrainian capitulation to Russia, and in which he favorably cites in defense of this position one Chas Freeman, who is uh, the former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia and a so-called paleoconservative ideologue who supports stability, as it is called, under authoritarian regimes, and has served as a kind of a semi-official interlocutor on Capitol Hill for several such regimes, including China. Now, uh, there was a a big to-do in 2009 when Freeman was briefly considered by then-President Barack Obama to chair the National Intelligence Council. And when his appointment was withdrawn, there was a lot of um, talk about how this had been instrumented by the neocons, by the neoconservatives, the rival tendency in the conservative movement in, uh, you know, the Beltway conservative current, and by the Israel lobby. 
because, uh, you know, Freeman takes a kind of a superficially good line on Palestine, and his journal, Middle East Policy, is one of the most critical of Israel among the, you know, Beltway think tank journals. And in fact, you know, I actually did some writing for it back in the day. I did some book reviews for Middle East Policy before, um, like going back like 15 years ago or more, before it became clear to me how sinister its politics really are. Now, we have to be clear. Chas Freeman does not oppose the U.S. blank check for Israel because he is concerned with human rights, as we shall see, but because he perceives that the U.S. backing a state that is illegally occupying the lands of an expropriated people, the Palestinians, is ultimately contrary to U.S. interests of state. Now, whether he is right or wrong about this, please, let's not confuse it for a pro-human rights position. Now, uh, you know, such rhetoric at the time won Freeman a lot of applause from, uh, you know, elements of the supposed left, particularly uh, Robert Dreyfus in The Nation, went to bat for him very aggressively. But amidst, uh, you know, the media flap over his appointment being withdrawn, a leaked email from Chas Freeman, was quoted in media accounts in which he abjectly, straight up, without equivocation, cheered on the Tiananmen Square massacre. I quote from the text of this leaked email from uh, Chas Freeman, apparently dating back to 2006. Quote, I find the dominant view in China about this very plausible i.e., that the truly unforgivable mistake of the Chinese authorities was the failure to intervene on a timely basis to nip the demonstrations in the bud, as would have been both wise and efficacious to intervene with force when all other measures had failed to restore domestic tranquility to Beijing and other major urban centers in China. In this optic, the Politburo's response to the mob scene at Tiananmen stands as a monument to overly cautious behavior on the part of the leadership, not as an example of rash action. For myself, I side on this, if not on numerous other issues, With General Douglas MacArthur, I do not believe it is acceptable for any country to allow the heart of its national capital to be occupied by dissidents intent on disrupting the normal functions of government, however appealing to foreigners their propaganda may be. End quote. And uh, when I first read this leaked email, I was kind of scratching my head about the Douglas MacArthur reference. What was he referring to? And then the light bulb went on. In invoking Douglas MacArthur in defense of the Tiananmen Square massacre, Chas Freeman was referring to the 1932 repression of the bonus march in Washington, D.C. Just to refresh your memory, the so-called Bonus Army March of 1932 was, uh, you know, organized by 
veterans of World War One, guys who had fought in World War One, and now, you know, at the worst part of the Great Depression, were still being denied veterans benefits that they had been promised. And they were actually camping out in a kind of a shanty town in Washington, D.C., until they were cleared by the police, backed up by a contingent of army troops under Douglas MacArthur, under his command. At least two were killed, and there was all of this talk about, you know, communist infiltration of the protesters, and Douglas MacArthur, of course, would, you know, later go on to uh, fight the Chinese communists in Korea. Certainly kind of a uh, an irony. And in light of this, you know, I submit that, uh, you know, Chas Freeman is a rather odd hero for the left. Wouldn't you have to agree, Robert Dreyfus and Noam Chomsky? But this kind of thinking is reflected in the so-called whataboutery oft heard in so-called leftist propaganda, where the response to any atrocity committed by any government other than the United States is, well, what would the United States do? And this leaked email from Chas Freeman really reveals how cynical and illogical this kind of thinking is. Obviously, support for repression abroad ultimately means support for repression at home. And if you're legitimizing state repression in, say, China, by pointing out that the U.S. would do and has done crimes of similar nature, you're implicitly justifying state repression in the United States. And this shows how, you know, this, uh, you know, left paleocon alliance is utterly suicidal. Now, you can trace the roots of this alliance to the backlash against the regime change hubris of the neocons. Now, the uh, pinnacle of neocon power under the W. Bush administration coincided with the horrors of Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and the shock and awe bombardment of Baghdad. Now, maybe some of the neocons actually believed their own rhetoric about democracy and freedom and opposing dictatorships and freedom for women in Afghanistan, etc. But obviously, their politics were riven with deep contradictions at the very best and were utterly hypocritical at worst. But instead of recognizing this, too many lefties appear to have accepted the neocons' own self-serving pro-democratic rhetoric at face value and embraced the paleocon doctrine of stability under authoritarian regimes and came to view democracy and regime change with suspicion under all circumstances, even when the people want the downfall of the regime became the banner of the Arab Revolution in 2011. And I will point out that there was briefly talk, or at least paranoia, in official circles in China that year about a jasmine revolution spreading to the People's Republic. And if you are going to dismiss the Arab Revolution and the other revolutionary upsurges around the world that year, 2011, as, you know, all neocon astroturf 
well, that is utterly deluded and utterly condescending to the Arabs and the Iranians and the Kazakhs and others who rose up against dictatorships that year. And, you know, most tellingly, while, uh, you know, pillars of the paleocon right are seeking to deny or justify the Tiananmen Square massacre, so are elements of the sectarian left in the United States, the particularly egregious Workers' World Party, has a story on their website. You can Google it. Quote, Tiananmen Square massacre was a myth, with massacre in quotes. The word massacre actually in scare quotes. All right, now here's where we're going to actually uh, turn our attention to the events of June 1989, because there is a certain element of truth which is being cynically and dishonestly exploited in this lie, as is often the case. And this is where, you know, popular misconceptions in the West about what happened in Beijing in June 1989 play into the hands of the revisionists and denialists. Now, there was indeed a Tiananmen Square massacre. There were, in fact, students who were killed in Tiananmen Square. But the great many who were killed, the hundreds, were not students and were not actually in the square. They were the workers and the common people of Beijing who mobilized in support of the students and attempted to block the advance of troops and tanks onto the square on June 4th, 1989. It was mostly these folks who were killed, essentially sacrificing themselves in defense of the students. And this was the real threat that the, the movement was beginning to spread beyond the students with the emergence of the Beijing Workers' Autonomous Federation in alliance with the student protesters and as an alternative to the, or perceived or aspiring to be, you know, an alternative to the state-controlled All-China Federation of Trade Unions. And protests with such alliances were starting to spread to cities all across China, as Chas Freeman noted in his email. And the massacre in Beijing on June 4th was followed by harsh repression in cities across China. So Tiananmen Square movement has sort of become a shorthand for something which was actually much bigger and much more of a threat to the regime. And, contrary to popular perceptions in the West on both the left and the right, the movement was not anti-communist per se in its politics, and certainly not monolithically pro-capitalist. A very interesting book was published by um, the anarchist press Black Rose Books in Montreal in 1990, one year after the massacre, entitled Voices from Tiananmen Square, Beijing Spring and the Democracy Movement, a collection of documents, including many statements from the student protesters and dissident labor activists, edited by Mak Chu Yu and J. Frank Harrison. I'm going to read a very brief passage from a statement entitled For a Socialist Multi-Party System in China, 
by one of the students camping out in the square by the name of X.X. Young, quite possibly a pseudonym. I was not able to glean any information about him online. But he argues in this brief statement that, you know, the one-party state and the dictatorship of the paramount leader then under Deng Xiaoping meant that there was no check on official corruption and the lack of democracy was actually undermining the socialist system. I quote from the text, Some people worry that a multi-party system will alter the nature of the socialist state. This kind of worry is unfounded. A multi-party system would protect socialism against those who would destroy it. So a socialist multi-party system has a pragmatic value, and we should regard its implementation as an obvious necessity, end quote. Now, one could, of course, find countervailing quotes, and certainly the movement was heterodox and was debating ideas, but the perception of, you know, monolithic, pro-West, Cold War-type anti-communist politics is not accurate. And this misconception about the politics of the democracy movement and the misconceptions about the facts of the massacre are linked to a greater political misconception. Now, the popular assumption in the West, really from, you know, Nixon's visit to China in 1972, where he and Kissinger met with Mao, to just a few years ago, was that China would open politically as it embraced capitalism and globalization. Obviously, it didn't work out this way. As China is now becoming a more closed dictatorship under Xi Jinping, who was emerging as a new paramount leader. And this, you know, oversimplified notion that capitalism and free markets inevitably means democracy is, you know, obviously contradicted by many examples, including that of General Augusto Pinochet in Chile who was essentially placed in power by Nixon and Kissinger through the Central Intelligence Agency in 1973, the year after they went to China and met with Mao. And Pinochet, of course, you know, aggressively embraced capitalism and gave a sweet deal to the foreign copper companies while running a brutal dictatorship. Now, an interesting corrective to uh, the popular assumptions in the West about post-Mao China's supposed retreat from totalitarianism was provided by the late William Hinton in his uh, 1990 book on Deng Xiaoping's capitalist conversion, The Great Reversal. Now, Hinton, of course, was famous for um, his classic work, Fan Shen, published in um, 1966, a kind of work of um, political anthropology, so to speak, a uh, documentary of revolution, as it was called, which um, documented and detailed the um, land reform program in the 1940s in Longbow Village, Shanxi province. Now, Hinton was obviously a you know dogmatic partisan of the Chinese revolution and had a rather uncritical view of Mao Zedong, which I do not share. Just need to make that clear. Nonetheless, his view of the massacre 
is very instructive in the very opening words of the Great Reversal. He wrote, and I quote, June 4th, 1989, stands as a stark watershed in China's modern history. The slaughter of unarmed civilians by units of the People's Liberation Army as they blasted their way to Tiananmen Square illuminated the Reform Era as nothing else could. It lit up like a bolt of cosmic lightning, the reactionary essence of China's current leading group. This essence was known to many in China and to some abroad long before the lightning struck in June 1989. But most members of the Western media and academic world were too mesmerized by China's reform rhetoric and market progress to apprehend the reality of the events unfolding before their eyes. Since privatization matched their prejudices, and a consumption boom confirmed its validity, they preferred not to look too closely at the underlying currents of economic dislocation, infrastructural decay, environmental degradation, social disintegration, cultural malaise, and rising class antagonisms that threatened to unravel the fabric of Chinese society. Mao Zedong was far more astute More than 20 years ago, during the Cultural Revolution, he exposed Deng Xiaoping, Yang Shankun, who would, interjecting here, serve as official president when Deng was the so-called paramount leader, and most of their hard-line colleagues as capitalist rotors. He accurately predicted that if such persons ever came to power, they would transform the Communist Party into a revisionist party, and finally into a fascist party. And then the whole of China would change color. The surprising thing is not how accurate Mao's prediction turned out to be, but rather how quickly it materialized in history. End quote. From The Great Reversal by William Hinton, Monthly Review Press, 1990. So was the Tiananmen Square massacre in spite of China's capitalist transition? Or, on the contrary, was it a function of it? Was it a red terror, as is popularly assumed by both the regime's defenders and detractors? Or, on the contrary, was it a white terror, a terror of anti-communist reaction? A case, at least, can be made for the latter. On June 4, 1989, China's rulers proved to the world that they were willing to slaughter their own citizens in the interest of stability, quote-unquote. Still the favorite word of the paleocons today. They were rewarded with massive investment, as Chile was after General Pinochet's similar demonstration of September 11, 1973 and the horrific conditions at the Guangdong factories that produce the high-tech gadgetry for Apple at minimal labor costs are the clearest evidence why this demonstration worked. And stating this obvious reality seems to be just as taboo in the West as in China, 
a grim testament to the power of globalization. And in the years after the massacre, despite brief and weak sanctions in the immediate aftermath, well, in the 1990s, China received most favored nation trading status from the United States, which was made permanent in 2001, the same year that China was allowed to join the World Trade Organization. Essentially, China's rulers were rewarded by the West for the massacre. Now, it seems like some in the West have had a rude awakening, as China at this moment is rapidly building its military power and challenging the West, at least for control of its immediate backyard, so to speak, what in Beijing's official parlance is called the First Island Chain, including the South China Sea and Taiwan. And, uh, you know, what's happening now can actually be seen in retrospect as a culmination of Deng's strategy as well. His famous slogan was, hide your strength, bide your time, which can be seen as meaning that China's national bourgeoisie, in Marxist terms, which is synonymous or near synonymous with the upper elements of the Communist Party, should build up enough economic power by selling the labor of China's proletariat to the West, that they can now approach the ability to challenge the West in the struggle for global primacy. So Xi Jinping, in contrast to Deng Xiaoping, is clearly preparing to challenge the West rather than woo it. But he is equally capitalist. The new Cold War between the U.S. and China is unburdened of the ideological baggage of the first Cold War. It is a plain old rivalry between capitalist great powers. Now, Joe Biden is sort of, you know, playing to nostalgia for the first Cold War by, you know, casting the rivalry between the West and Russia and China as, you know, democracy versus authoritarianism. But you certainly can't pretend that it has anything to do with capitalism versus communism. And, uh, you know, this is recognized, interestingly enough, by um, John Mearsheimer, another paleocon, who is paradoxically beloved by many on the left because he advocates appeasement of Putin. But I was a little surprised to find that he had a story in the uh, November-December 2021 issue of Foreign Affairs entitled The Inevitable Rivalry in which he argued that it was a mistake for the West to engage China because we were simply, you know, allowing for the the rise of a geopolitical rival. So strangely enough, Mearsheimer appears to be, uh, you know, soft on Russia, but a hardliner on China. And obviously the Peleocons are divided on the question of China. But he very uh, rightly and, uh, you know, realistically, to use another Peleocon buzzword, writes in this piece, that China is, quote, best understood as an authoritarian state that embraces capitalism, end quote, which is precisely correct. Now, I don't view the question as he does, that engaging China was a strategic error on the part of the U.S. because it led to the rise of a geopolitical rival. I mean, to me, that's just kind of the ironic finish to the story. I opposed engaging China, quote-unquote, 
because it was the United States coddling a dictatorship in the interest of capital and corporate power, exactly as in Pinochet's Chile. Now, the regime's defenders always say that China's economic growth over the past generation has lifted millions out of poverty. And it's true. But it's also all unsustainable. The ecological costs have been horrific. The air is unbreathable in many cities. Farmland is going dry and being contaminated with toxins thanks to the hyper-industrialization. It's all built on the super-exploitation of laborers who have been thrust into the new industrial zones like Shenzhen as the peasant class from which they emerged has been usurped of its lands by the new bourgeoisie and vast wealth inequities have opened, shantytowns emerging, and the poorest of the poor pushed downwards, even as millions have entered the middle class. Now, a very interesting window onto these questions was opened a few years back by the so-called Bo Lai affair. Uh, you may recall that Bo Lai was the populist Chinese Communist Party chief in Chongqing, who was openly playing to Mao nostalgia and uh, was arrested on seemingly real corruption sleaze in June 2012. And um, his dethronement came immediately after the World Bank had issued a policy paper calling for faster market reform in China. And this sort of set off uh, this conspiracy theorizing on the Chinese left that Bo's downfall had been, you know, instrumented behind the scenes by the World Bank. And two sort of Mao nostalgist websites, which had been proffering this conspiracy theory, entitled Mao Flag and Utopia, were ordered closed by the authorities for so-called rectification. They were both offline for quite some time. The uh, Utopia website, at least, appears to be back online under a different URL, but it's been um, seemingly purged of anything critical of the regime. So, internet censorship in defense of free markets carried out by a government that rules in the name of a communist party. That's another one to file under Orwell would shit. And uh, the Utopia website was apparently associated with a leftist bookstore of that name in Beijing, which was seemingly shut down along with the website, and I don't believe that it's reopened. And um, I visited that bookstore when I was in Beijing two years earlier in 2010. And uh, even at the time, there was a sense that it was kind of semi-underground. It did not actually have a storefront. It was actually in an apartment in an apartment building with nothing on the, uh, the outside of the building to indicate that there was a bookstore there, not even a sign in the window. You kind of had to know it was there and get buzzed into the building. It took some doing for me to find it. <laughs> get buzzed into the building and go up to the right floor. And then all of a sudden, you know, you open an apartment door and you're in a bookstore. Very strange. And very unusual for Beijing, because, you know, there were plenty of, you know, Barnes & Noble-type bookstores in Beijing. But, uh, you know, the books on display here were uh, seemingly, you know, openly published by um, Chinese university presses and so on, but they were not of the type that you would find 
in you know the big commercial bookstores in Beijing. They were works by Chinese Marxists and Maoists and translations of Noam Chomsky. And uh, there was one book about Mexico's Zapatista rebels, which actually cited my work in the footnotes. I was very honored to find. Book was in Chinese, of course, but the uh, English language works cited in the footnotes were rendered in the original English. So I was able to determine that it was my work. <clears throat> and uh, there was a big portrait of Mao over the checkout counter, and they were selling little Mao pins. And when I bought the book, they gave me one with a smile, which I still have today as a souvenir. Okay, so back to 2012. Later that same year, Xi Jinping comes to power. And he himself starts to adopt some, you know, sort of Mao nostalgic rhetoric and imagery. But this was unambiguously exposed as very empty and transparent in 2018. When workers attempted to form an independent union at JASIC Technology, a manufacturer of welding equipment in Shenzhen, and were, of course, fired. And Marxist and Maoist students, mostly from Peking University, began to organize in their support, and several were arrested. And there was what the students decried as a white terror at the Peking University campus. Most notorious was the case of Yue Xin, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who was then 22 years old. And in addition to um, being involved in um, activism in support of the JASIC workers, had also accused the Peking University authorities of tolerating sexual harassment. And she was disappeared, seemingly detained extrajudicially and held incommunicado. I believe that her whereabouts remain unknown even today, although she did briefly reappear about a year after her arrest to make an obviously forced confession. All rather chilling. And all of this as, you know, Xi Jinping was emerging as, you know, the new Maoist-style paramount leader, pushing through constitutional changes that allow him to be president for life, basically. And the Chinese Communist Party constitution was amended to officially enshrine Xi Jinping thought as his own ideology, supposedly building on Mao, just as Mao built upon Stalin and Lenin and Marx and Engels. Well, I say that Xi Jinping thought is Mao in rhetoric and Pinochet in practice. And very interestingly, at the same time, that this white terror was unfolding at Peking University. KFC, yeah, that's right, Kentucky fucking fried chicken, ran a television ad campaign in China celebrating 40 years of reform and opening up, quote-unquote, the catchphrase of Deng's counter-revolution. Corporate communism, eh? And uh, when I was in China, I was perhaps naively surprised to find that Colonel Sanders' face was far more ubiquitous in Beijing than that of Mao Zedong. I mean, it was not even close. And my question about Utopia Books, with their big portrait of Mao over the checkout counter, and the, you know, student worker solidarity movement generally, which was crushed by Xi Jinping, was there, you know, 
Maostalgia, so to speak, authentic? Or was it an attempt at an acceptable cover for their descent? One which it would be, you know, harder for the uh, authorities to repress, although, of course, they did anyway. Now, I don't know the answer. And they, I'm sure, or at least, you know, the more sophisticated among their ranks, these left-wing dissidents that I'm speaking about in China, I'm sure that they must have a critique of how, you know, the totalitarian structure built by Mao, the whole notion of a paramount leader, has since 1989 been exploited to enforce China's capitalist conversion. So to me, a critique of China's post-Mao system necessarily implies a critique of Maoism. But I will give the real Maoists, not the Xi Jinping thought pseudo-Maoists, but the real ones, I will give them credit for at least cutting no slack for Deng and his successors, including Xi, who they revile as revisionists and capitalist roaders in, you know, Maoist language. Now, the international left has long been divided on its views of Maoism and Mao's project. The anarchists and dissident Marxists, so to speak, like C.L.R. James and Rides and Ayavskaya, has viewed Mao's China as state capitalist, whereas many Trotskyists have viewed it as a deformed workers' state, like the USSR, while the Maoists themselves, of course, see it as, you know, a correct-line socialist state. But in any case, no matter how you view it, it is clear that its legacy has been completely betrayed. The so-called People's Republic is now even moving away from state capitalism to plain old Western-style, or worse, savage capitalism, with private companies like Jasek and Foxconn operating in special economic zones like Shenzhen, and once again, the emerging new Cold War between the U.S. and China is a plain old rivalry between capitalist powers. But there's a lot of people on the left and the right who continue to not grasp this and to sort of, you know, be in a Cold War time warp. One figure in the news at the moment is Adrian Zenz, the researcher who has been doggedly documenting the mass detention of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, and most recently published a cache of um, leaked documents which were apparently hacked from computers in the detention camps in Xinjiang, entitled um, The Xinjiang Police Files, revealing the names and identities of many of those who have been detained and the really brutal nature of the conditions in these camps, with watchtowers being mounted with machine guns and the guards being given shoot-the-kill orders, lest anyone try to escape. And mind you, we are not talking about prisons here. We are talking about detention camps, where there hasn't been any kind of, you know, accusation of crime, no kind of judicial process. And Adrian Zenz, who is doing really vital work as a researcher, clearly has, you know, anti-communist and right-wing Christian proclivities. And his organization is called the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. 
And again, I say that there's a very good case that the assumptions behind this are just backwards. Remember Deng's phrase for his capitalist conversion? Socialism with Chinese characteristics, quote-unquote. Well, here's a uh, very blatant example of it morphing into fascism with Chinese characteristics. I'm going to read a little bit from a, um, a story that ran in the New York Times on August 2nd, 2020, entitled The Chinese Thinkers Behind Xi's Hard Line. A profile of um, the men who have emerged as the intellectual enablers of Xi's crackdown in Hong Kong. From the text, quote, a number of these scholars, sometimes called statists, have worked on policy toward Hong Kong. Their proposals have fed into China's increasingly uncompromising line, including the new national security law, which has swiftly curbed protest and political debate, as well as earnestly citing Mr. Xi's speeches. These academics draw on ancient Chinese thinkers who counseled stern rulership, along with Western critics of liberal political traditions. Traditional Marxism is rarely cited. They are proponents of order, not revolution. Many of them make respectful nods in their papers to Karl Schmitt, the German legal theorist who supplied rightist leaders in the 1930s and the emerging Nazi regime with arguments for extreme executive power in times of crisis, end quote. And Carl Schmidt, of course, was, you know, the great theorist of the so-called state of exception, the notion that rule of law and democracy are expendable in times of crisis and that power rightly belongs, at least at such intervals, to those with the ruthlessness to seize it. So even in the Xi regime's official intellectual circles, Karl Marx is being downplayed in favor of Karl Schmidt. I say that Xi Jinping thought, like Putinism and Trumpism, is a contemporary updated variant of fascism which certainly places the repression in Hong Kong and the concentration camps in Xinjiang in a very harsh light. Okay, once again, if you're listening to this in time and you're in the New York area, please come out to Washington Square Park on Saturday, June 4th, starting at 5 p.m., candlelight vigil at 7.30 p.m. Hope to see you there. For more information, check out um, New York for Hong Kong. That's NY4, numeral 4, HK, on uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the works. Again, please come out to Washington Square Park, Saturday, June 4th. Hope to see you there. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. You can check us out online at countervortex.org. And you can support us on Patreon. Please do it now while you're thinking about it. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Even a buck or two a week will make a big, big difference to keeping this fighting dissident voice going. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.